Welcome to Advent Christian Voices with the Renewed Church Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Reynolds, and I'm joined by Grandmaster Flash, Justin Nash. We are seeking to lead the discussion with, uh, while providing practical advice on church health among Advent Christian churches. What's up, Grandmaster Flash? Uh, not much, man. You're still the man. <laughs> um, so we this should be the second podcast that we're doing uh on on marks of a healthy church uh previously you probably have already listened to nine marks of a healthy church if you have not listened to that go back and listen to what the nine marks of a healthy church are according to mark dever uh today we're actually going to look at john 17 um which provide for us some indication of of six marks of a healthy church and which i was able to rip as i was preparing for a sermon um several weeks ago on john 17 and uh, when I was looking through a lot of the commentaries, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite commentator, commentators, pointed out six different marks of a healthy church found in John 17. So we're going to cover those today. Um, how does that sound, Justin? That sounds outstanding. All right. So let's look towards um, John 17, verse 13. Now, for those who, who aren't uh, entirely familiar with this passage of Scripture, I encourage you to read the entire chapter of John 17 uh, now. Pause this right now. Okay, so now that you're unpaused and you've read John chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 13 through 23. And this is the high priestly prayer. This is um, Jesus' kind of like last moment before getting arrested and, and the betrayal of, of Judas. So uh, we're looking at John 17, 13, and the first mark being joy. So reading John 17, 13, Jesus says, but now, this is the ESV, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Justin, um, joy, what does that look like in the heart of a healthy church? What do, what, do, what do we think Christ is saying here in his prayer? Well, I think two, so two things sort of pop out to me as I look at that passage. Number one, it's his joy, his perfect joy. And it's his perfect joy that is ours because of his perfect fellowship with his father, which is kind of a theme this that runs through, through this prayer so the first thing is that it is jesus joy that we have so it's not something that we manufacture number one i think number two an important aspect of biblical joy is joy is not contingent upon our circumstances mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. it's, it is a joy that is ours regardless of where we find ourselves but again it is a joy that is based upon our security our position, our identity in Christ. And then I, I don't know. I just really like this idea that it is his joy fulfilled. So it's like an abundance of his joy mm -hmm. that that are that are this present in us. And I think the the reality is um it's you, you don't go into a lot of churches where you feel a sense of joy. Uh oh. That's true. You struck a nerve, I'm sure, with a few people with that one. Yeah, I, I just think it was one of the things when we do, when I do kind of consultation with churches, this was one of the questions I ask, and it's, and it's one that's worth thinking about, 
is when you go to your your Sunday morning gathering, your your big worship service, whenever that is, what's the temperature in the room? Mm-hmm. Because you can you instantly have a sense of that. And if it's not really permeated with a sense of joy and passion, then I think you, you probably have a problem there. And so this is so, something that's great. But, you know, it, it's if it's a joy that's built on, oh, we've got a lot of people here today and the music's really good. Well, that's not biblical joy. Mm-hmm. Biblical joy, again, is rooted in, I think, anyway, our identity in Christ mm-hmm. and our connection with him and our fellowship with one another. It's, again, it's independent of our circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times a lot of a lot of individual Christians, me included, uh, we, we have trouble with that. We just have trouble doing that. Yeah, well, you know, Boyce talks about two things if there isn't this joy that we each have, um, two ways to help remedy that. One is sound doctrine, which I'll get to here in a, uh, in a moment, and then and the second one, fellowship, true biblical fellowship. So uh, with the sound doctrine, understanding of who Christ is, who we are, and what he's done for us and who we are in him should bestow upon us a joy that is unmatched by anything uh, in this world. So the, the regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves, regardless of whether or not we are, you know, coming together and say the worship style isn't what we like, or the preaching isn't the way that we prefer, or um, the prayers are longer than we're comfortable with or not long enough. Maybe we're not happy with the way that people dress when they come into church, or maybe we're in a rundown building with, with a leaking ceiling. Maybe the bathrooms don't work or anything like that. Regardless of all those circumstances, there should be a sense of contentment that we have found in Christ and a joy that is overflowing based on our relation to him, knowing that regardless of what's going on in this world, we are still saved. Our status before the Lord is unchanged um, based on our personal circumstances. And this joy that we have is seeing him glorified in our lives. As as John Piper would say, you know, God is most glorified as we find our, our greatest joy in him. That's paraphrased. But are we most joyful uh, when we are um, seeking to glorify God in our lives? Are we most happy when we are just resting in the comfort of knowing who he is and in loving him? Uh, and then the second one, the fellowship, you know, are we, are, are we in a fellowship with other believers? Um, and, and as, as Boyce says, I'm going to quote, quote Boyce, the second remedy for lack of joy in the believer's life is fellowship. And that in two dimensions, there is a vertical fellowship, fellowship with God, which, you know, Christ is talking about in this whole passage of scripture, unity or fellowship between, uh, between God, the father and God, the son, but also uh, the believers who believe in Christ. Uh, and there's a horizontal fellowship, fellowship with one another. Jesus is a pattern for us in both cases. So we should seek to fellowship with the Father. So when we come, we can do that like when we're in prayer or in Bible reading, Bible study. So when we're seeking that fellowship, it isn't just a, hey, let me petition God um, to give me some more financial, circum- you know, better financial circumstances or, or help me through this period of time. I just want to talk to God. I want to commune with him. Let me spend time praising God and thanking him for all the 
um, for the salvation that he's given me and the creation of this world and all that. Um, and the other thing is that, that we want to commune with fellow believers. You know, when we talked about the nine marks, one of those key things is biblical membership. So are we part of a local church? And if we are, are we meeting together regularly with, with those people? So. Yeah, I, I think one of the I don't know, aspects of our contemporary culture and contemporary church culture is this idea of people seeking happiness. And they tend to seek happiness, I think, in things and people, relationships, experience, comfort, freedom from pain, even these things that God can give us. But they don't seek God himself. And so ha happiness ultimately becomes an idol in our lives. And the problem is, if we pursue happiness, we'll never find it. But if we and if we pursue God for the sake of happiness, we won't find it. The idea, and I think you've hit it right on the head there, is let's let's pursue God because He's enough. Jesus is enough. He's the reason for our joy. Our joy is grounded in Him, and that's where our joy is found. It's mm -hmm. His joy that He gives to us. Mm -hmm. Amen. Our next, uh, our next mark is holiness, as found in verses fourteen through 17. And I'll go on and read that. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. So this points to holiness as our next, uh, next, mark of a healthy church. Justin, can you describe for us or give us a, a working definition of what holiness is? Uh, well, for me, holiness, I guess, means being like Jesus. I mean, really, is I guess, is the simplest way to say it. I mean, the idea of holiness is to be set apart. Mm -hmm. And so it's to be set apart from the world, set apart to God and to his service. And so I, I tend to think when I think of holiness, I think of our sanctification, our mm -hmm. growth in holiness, our growth of being more and more like Jesus and becoming more and more invested in who he is, losing really more and more of ourselves and our own, of our own worldliness so that we are who God created us to be in, in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, 100% agree with that. Holiness, to you know, I look at that and go, you know, God is really the only one who is truly holy, and which means to be separated from sin. There is no sin in God. So um, our holiness is, is not something that we can ever really attain until our glorification, you know, the second coming of Christ and receive our glorified bodies will no, no longer be subject to a fallen world. However, the there is a progression, as you say, sanctification as we become more and more like Christ, where we become more and more um, genetically holy, I would say, whereas we already are covered with the righteousness and holiness of Christ in our union with him. So the, there are a couple practical ways that I think of that we can grow in holiness. Do you have any suggestions, Justin? Well, I don't have a suggestion so much as a caution I think we often couch holiness in terms of what we don't do. Mm -hmm. 
right? Holiness, we don't we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't play cards, we don't dance, whatever. We tend to to frame holiness only in those terms. And I think holiness is much, much more than that. Holiness is very much about what the things that we do as well. Again, are we being obedient to Christ? Are we constantly being shaped and changed into his image? Mm-hmm. And so I think holiness has a little bit of a of a bad connotation because it's so often associated with not doing stuff or prohibitions. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly part of it. But I think we focus uh, oftentimes on the, the set apart from the world rather than the set apart to God aspect of holiness way too often. Well, and we often focus too much on, as you said, you brought up uh, not drinking, not playing cards, not, not smoking. Um, I mean, I haven't seen a a convincing biblical argument to not do those things apart from not, not wanting to cause another brother to stumble or something like that. So, um, you know, many people would say, well, you can't smoke because it's bad for you and your, and your body's a temple. Yeah. It's a temple of the Holy spirit so that I can glorify God in, in my life. But, um, is it unhealthy? Yeah. Unwise probably, but there's not a specific call in scripture to not smoke or to not drink other than to not be a drunkard um, and to not be given to much wine. So we need to be cautious in what we're saying holiness is. It's truly a a separation uh, from one from sin. And I think a couple of ways we look to the word of God. We, we bathe ourselves and bathe each other in the word of God. This is what God has given us to, to teach us and to lead us and to train us in righteousness. So, Let's use that. Let's read the Bible. Let's share the Bible with each other and um, also accountability. You know, we often talk about um, not drinking or not smoking, but we rarely talk about gluttony as a sin. You know, if that exactly. Well, I know you're in the South, so, you know, you got many potlucks down there. And but I mean, think about it, man. Like we we have all these potlucks, we have all these dinners and all this, and you see people going up having three, four, five plates of food um, and stacking food on their plate. That is uh, the one of the leading causes of death in this country is overeating, right? Is obesity. So we get, we get all caught up in, well, you can't drink, you can't smoke because it's bad for you. But then we go and we host a potluck dinner and don't say anything to that dear brother who, you know, is several hundred pounds overweight. So, um, and trust me, I don't have anything against people who are overweight, but we just need to use the same measure, you know, measure of judgment here. Um, let's be cautious, you know, let's use the word of God to bathe each other in, um, and spur us on to holiness and not our own preconceived notions based on what our grandmother told us, you know, 30 years ago about what holiness is because grandma might've had bad theology. Right, right. Yeah. Um, one one other scripture just to pull into this I think is always interesting. People always talk and say they want to know God's will for their life. Um, everybody says that, but you look at First Thessalonians four three, and Paul's pretty clear here. He says, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification." Mm. That is that you abstain for sexual immorality. So you know what God's will for our life is? It's that we be holy. Mm-hmm. Amen. So, Amen. It's a good word. Uh, John seventeen seventeen. Uh, we're, we're looking at truth as our next mark, truth. Jesus goes on to say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what is the truth, Justin? 
Well, I mean, I think he says uh, he says it there. The word of God is true. The word of God is truth. And I think it's the whole word. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't at this point, I don't know that he's talking about the, the, the gospel message. That's certainly a part of it. But I think it's just really this idea that it is the word of God that make is, is God's principal instrument to make us holy. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there bears any further explanation on that. I think that's pretty straightforward, right? Like the word of God, uh, we, you know, we often refer to it as the Bible or scripture, you know, bathe yourselves in it, as we mentioned before on, on the previous mark on holiness. So let's delight in the truth and, and delight in the word of God, the wisdom of God, not necessarily the wisdom of this world. So next, our, uh, what is this? Our fourth mark is mission. Mm-hmm. John 17, 8, 18 through 19. So mission. And Jesus goes on to say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So God, ha- God the Father has sent Jesus the Son into the world. And, he- and Jesus has sent us into the world and he'll later go on to say not that we would be of the world but that we would live in the world so what is what is our mission there justin well i think it's to be ambassadors the proclamation of the kingdom of god on earth it's the great commission which he'll get to shortly in john 20 john 20 21 is basically the the joanine great commission and so it's basically go and make disciples, go and proclaim the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's how I that's how I read that, and that's how I think about it. That's really our mission to be ambassadors, to be his representatives, and to be proclaimers of the gospel. Amen. Yeah, God is a sending God. He has not called you to salvation. So that, and he has not called those in the church to salvation to come together once a week for a holy huddle and talk about how bad the world is and how great God is. We are absolutely supposed to talk about how great God is. Um, and we're supposed to uh, be encouraged to go out into the world and share the gospel and to call others into communion with God. So that doesn't necessarily mean like, hey, I'm going to go ask someone to come to church. You know, we often think like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go ask this person to come to church and let the, the preacher do all the work in, in sharing the gospel with them. But God has called each of us individually with our own gifts and our own. You know, he's called uh, Justin. He's called myself to live in a specific community at a specific time and to, uh, so that we would reach those in our neighborhood, those in, with whom we work with. I know, Justin, you have quite the mission field uh, where you work at ACGC headquarters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, you know, we we're we're called to reach these folks and not just you know, kind of button down uh, the hatches and say, you know, I just don't want to be tainted by the world. You know, Jesus went and met with sinners where they were uh, for the purpose of sharing uh, love and mercy with them so that uh, they would be set apart, so that they would be saved and that God would be glorified. Yeah, I think Jesus circles back around to this at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 26. He says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love of which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them, 
So there's this idea that making this idea of making known the Father, you know, mm-hmm. again to get, you know, and he says this earlier in in John seventeen seventeen three, and this is eternal life. Well, what's eternal life? That they may know you, the only mm-hmm. true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So it, it is this idea of it's this proclaiming the knowledge of God to all the world. Right. And, and we often think of eternal life as something that happens after we die, but right. eternal life truly starts when we're converted, right? Like, like eternal life starts when we uh, are th- that moment when we are regenerated and turn to God in faith and turn away and repent of our sin. So um, the fifth mark, the fifth mark of the church is unity verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. That um, Oh, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That is a passage that I encourage you to go back and reread, uh, those who are listening, because, it, you know, with all with how Jesus frames this, um, his dialogue here, uh, you know, it can, you can get confused with, with all, all that. What Jesus is essentially saying, he is calling those believers, those who believe in Christ, he's calling them to be one with each other, one with him, just as Christ and the Father are one. So there's a there's a sharing, and not to get too much into a into a uh, discussion about how uh, the Godhead works, but that all three persons in the Godhead are one. They are not separate but each have a different role and a different personhood. And that's a conversation for, I think that's outside of the purview of our podcast here, but there's, there is a inherent essence that is shared between all three persons that they are, they are not separate in unity, but they are, are one and they are one God. So likewise, we share in essence with one another bound to us through the blood of Christ as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you mentioned this other was in this podcast, the previous one um, he mentions in his book, costly discipleship that as Christians, we now have a mediator between not only our relationship with the father, but our relationship with one another, that Christ is our mediator between one another, which unites us. So um, unity within the church, we often think that unity well, I'll let you. I'll let you handle this, Justin. You seem to be an expert in in unity or lack thereof. Um, <laughs> what are some misconceptions we have about unity? I think one is that unity equals uniformity. That it means that everybody has to be the same. But I think what Jesus puts forth here is that our unity in the in a body of Christ in the in the church, capital C church. And then our local churches ought to reflect the unity that he has with his father. Mm-hmm. And what we see in the Godhead is not uniformity, but we see diversity in unity. We see the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the they are economically the economic trinity is they they have different functions, different roles, 
but we have, but ontologically in terms of their being, they're the same. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's to be that way in the body of Christ that we are to be unity, unity. I think of it in terms of, you think of unity in terms of the Godhead. You think it's, there's a unity of desire. You know, Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. So there's a unifying of desire. There's a unity of action. The son only does what he sees the father do. Mm-hmm. There's a unity of purpose. And even here in this passage, what's the purpose that the world may know? And yet in that unity, there is diversity as, as each has his own role, but there's no selfishness. And that's what we're striving for. The, but the basis, again, for that unity, the reason that you and I even have that possibility of that unity is because we are united to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And he's the common ground for our unity. It's not that we go to the same church. It's not that we look alike. It's not even that we believe the same things. It's the fact that we are united to Jesus. He is the thing that holds us together. And so I think there's an idea a lot of times that, that we, we, are the unity means something that it doesn't. It doesn't mean we always agree and it doesn't mean we're all alike. It means we always pull in the same direction for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. They are always working towards that where there's, there's a selflessness, not a selfishness. There's a God centeredness, not a me centeredness. I think that's, I mean, unity is a huge topic of course, but I, I feel like that that's sort of the, the big idea. But I, I think what's really powerful about this though that Jesus says is so important is if our unity with one another is lacking, what does that suggest about our unity with Christ as individuals? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's, man, that's really powerful. When, when I start thinking about it in my own life, if I don't have unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ, what does that say about my unity with Jesus? Mm -hmm. And really how connected am I to him? So I think it's a powerful thing. And then also, what does our unity say to, because again, Jesus goes on that the world may know. Well, what does our unity or lack thereof say to an unbelieving world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, our, the purpose for that unity that God reveals here in this text is th- that the world would see that as a testimony that all that Christ has done and is doing is true. So if we lack unity, as you mentioned, like if we have an issue with another brother and sister and we can't get over it, like we're holding this over their head, we can't, you know, we're incapable of, of forgiving them and whatnot. That speaks, you know, volumes out of our relationship with God. Like we haven't, um, Justin, if I have an issue with you and like, it's like, we're humans, right? Like there's going to be something that Justin does that I don't like. Or, or some, you know, he's doing something that I think um, he shouldn't be doing, and he might say something to me or something like that. And if I just avoid him at all costs, if I start talking bad about him, if I blow up at him and start yelling at him and 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 or holding these things over his head, that goes and tells tells Justin that my relationship with God is is flawed in that I don't fully understand what God has done for me. Like I haven't fully understood how sinful I am as an individual and how much grace that God has given me by forgiving much of my sin. Like I haven't fully uh, developed that relationship with God. I'm not truly united with him uh, in, in an intellectual sense um, because of 
how I'm interacting with others in our church. Yeah, and I think that's a key point that about unity, maybe another misconception, that we can somehow will unity on our own. <laughs> we can't. The way we have unity is not pursuing unity. The way we have unity is in pursuing Jesus. Amen. Because the closer we get to Jesus, the more like Jesus we are, the closer we come to one another. But if we just try to connect with one another, we're going to miss it. Right. It's it's like that. It's like that. Um, I think Jeff Vanderstelt, who is the pastor of Soma Tacoma, he talks about missional communities. And he say, if you focus on community rather than uh, the mission, you'll never get to the mission because you'll focus mm-hmm. on just wanting to love one another and, and whatnot. But if you focus on the mission, the community will happen as you're on the mission. The same thing, like all of these things are kind of part of our DNA as believers as we're chasing after God. So as we're pursuing God um, after he's already pursued us, after we're pursuing him and seeking to know him and love him and, and we're, you know, continue to, to grow in our faith, then all of these other things will be apparent in our lives. You know, you don't get the fruit of the spirit because you're trying to be gentle and kind, right? You get the fruit of the spirit because it's an outflowing of your relationship with God and the Holy Spirit are, is making these gifts apparent in your life. So, right. Right. Yeah. That's great. Um, the last one, the last one that, um, that Boyce talks about is in John seventeen twenty three. Jesus uh, goes on to say, I am them and you are, um, I think this is the second part um, of verse 23. I'll just reread it. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the another mark of the healthy church would be love or, or as boys terms it, impartial love. Would you like to go on to explain that there, uh, Justin? Well, no, I, you know, I just sit here and I read that and really I'm kind of stunned. I I think we should all be stunned by the last part of that, Mm -hmm. that God has loved us as he has loved Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, his perfect son from all eternity, perfect unity that he loves us in that same way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's mind blowing. And that this unity, this love shows the world that Jesus was real, that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, that he was authentic. And of course I go, I hear that and I go back to John 13, 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that, that you love one another as I have loved you. Um, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love one to another. Mm -hmm. And that's not this, um, sort of sappy emotion. I mean, what he's describing here is not some sappy emotional or certainly not romantic love. It's, it is this, that's the love of the father for the son. Mm -hmm. It's this powerful, eternal, uh, perfect love. It's just an amazing thing. When you read that, man, that's stunning. God loves us that much. It's, it's incredible because it's, it's not only a, in a, like it's not an emotional love, but it's an active love in that there's something that happens, right? So I love my wife um, by encouraging her. I love my wife by supporting her and caring for her. There, there are actions that happen for me 
to love my wife. Likewise, when, when Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, he refers to, you know, he um, refers to the good Samaritan. There is an act of love. So the, the love that we have is going to be given to those within our church in, in the community, not for any partiality, not because we're expecting anything in return. We're doing it simply because it's an outflowing of the love that God has given us. It is an outpouring that our cup is so full of the love that God has given to us that we can't help but love those um, around us, whether that's in the local church or that in the community. And, you know, a couple practical things. If you truly love people in that way within your church, man, you're going to be able to forgive a whole lot of sins in your community. You're going to be able to forgive. Like, I don't like how Justin, I don't like how he wears his glasses. So I can, I can get past that. Justin and I can still be, be friends and brothers in Christ, even though I don't like how he looks with those glasses on. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'll, I'm taking that. I hope that was just an like an, an illustration, not the truth. But, but, no, but I think there's something. Much, I think there's something much more powerful at work there. It's just not about something about how we how we look, but I mean it's like who we are. How can a someone who's a artsy hipster and a button down a corporate lawyer get together and have unity and really love each other. But well, there's no way. I mean, that doesn't work in real life except for Jesus. Right. And so I think it's just so powerful how people can have, this can be very, very different and yet they can really truly genuinely love one another because of the love that Christ has shown to us. I think that goes back to this whole thing though. And this is a very convicting thing to think about that first off, as individuals, we ought to be growing in joy, holiness, truth, mission, unity, and love. And then our churches ought to be doing those, those same things. And if they're not, there's something wrong in the church. And what's wrong in the church, I think, is that we lose, we've lost Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's because Jesus is the thing that he's the thing that ties all this together. He's the core, he's the hub of the wheel that holds everything together, is Jesus. And we can pursue these things and we can try to program for them, strategize for them, implement all these great plans. But if we forget Jesus, if we forget to pursue him above all else, preeminently and supremely, none of this other stuff will be real. Mm -hmm. So if we are unhealthy, if we don't have joy or truth or love or holiness, it's because we've stepped away from Jesus. Same thing for our churches, I think. We may give him lip service, but the reality is we don't we're not really pursuing him. Right. Because if we are pursuing him, right, our our churches would look very different. And I'm not just saying like different demographics and things like that, just how we interact with one another, they're gonna look differently. What's interesting to me, I was thinking about this as, as you were talking, is is how incredible is it? It's only through the power and love of Christ that you can have Matthew, a tax collector, um, sit down at the table and be friends with, be friends with Peter, a fisherman, right? Because why? Matthew is this tax collector who he made his living. um, He made his living by 
overtaxing uh, his own people, the Israelites, um, so that he could make a living. So if their tax bill as they came in was $1,000, he would charge them $1,500 and he would live off that extra 500 bucks and give the $1,000 to the Roman government. So he was making his money off the backs of his own people and he was despised. He was scum of the earth. There's literally no worse person that the Jews would have thought of uh, outside of maybe the Samaritans, um, that they right. could be in fellowship. Well, with. And it's not just it's, yeah, it's not just Peter though. You look at Simon the Zealot, one of the twelve. Well, the Zealots were they were a Jew, you know, they were Jewish terrorists basically who were trying to overthrow the Roman government. And here you have you have these two guys in Jesus twelve who are polar opposites of where they when they started out in terms of political ideology and all these different things. And yet in Christ, they come together and he uses them to change the world. Right. It's amazing. Well, that yeah. that concludes our, our six marks that we see in. in well, I say uh, I see it as well as I think Justin does. But that's coming from James Montgomery Boyce um, that he pointed that out to us. And I think that's very helpful. Um, and I think that you look at that with the nine marks of Mark Dever that he puts forward. I look at these as DNA markers. These are things that are inherent. Like if you look at the. Uh, what's that thing called? Like the DNA graph where they show like the three strands and they're all going around. It's different pretty double, colors. The double, the double helix. Yeah, that's it. Oh, it's the two double strands. helix. So you look at that double helix. This is the double helix for, for the church. And um, these six marks, and I look at the nine marks that, that Dever um, gives us, and that's kind of an outplaying or a practical sense of nine marks of a healthy church. This is like how our DNA should look. Um, what we talked about today. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, I hope it was edifying. And please, if you have any questions or complaints, especially if they're complaints, uh, email jnash at acgc.us. If they are compliments or you have positive things to say, hey, email me, ebreynolds87 at gmail.com. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. You got any partner shots there, Justin? Yes, sir. Great job. All right. Well, God bless everybody. And uh, we'll see you soon.